The Toddcast, probably Andy Murray's favourite astronomy podcast, with John Field, Stuart Harper, Philippa Hartley, Libby Jones, Indy Leclerc, Ian Morrison, and Chris Wallace. The Toddcast, July 2013 edition. Hello, and welcome to The Toddcast. I'm Indy Leclerc, and joining me in the studio are Chris and Philippa. Hi, guys. Hi, Indy. Hello. In the show this time, we talk to Dr. Zoe Leinhardt about planetary formation from collisions. We find out what you can see in the night sky this month, and we round up some odds and ends from the world of astronomy. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Stuart. This month in the news, astro-seismology and astro-archaeology. A white dwarf is the hot stellar core left over from a star, which has exhausted all its fuel for fusion and has blown away all the outer layers of gas via strong stellar winds. Commonly, white dwarfs are composed of carbon and oxygen, the byproducts of helium fusion which takes place during the end-of-life stages of a star which is similar in mass to our Sun. However, there is a different sort of white dwarf that exists, one formed in the core of a star which was never given a chance to undergo helium fusion because of a catastrophic event that stripped the outer layers of the star prematurely. These helium-rich white dwarfs have much thicker atmospheres of hydrogen and masses much smaller than typical carbon-oxygen white dwarfs. What makes these sort of white dwarfs interesting to study is that they form in extreme environments, such as the centre of globular clusters, in the orbit around supermassive black holes millions of times the mass of the Sun, and as the survivor of its companion's supernova explosion. Currently, the understanding for how low-mass white dwarfs form is poor. Helium white dwarfs, which show particular characteristic differences, have been seen to both cool rapidly and retain their temperature consistently. To be able to understand how it is possible for helium white dwarfs to possess both of these properties at the same time requires that we find a star which we can study and know will one day form a helium white dwarf. Fortunately, the Wide Angle Search for Planets project known as WASP came across just such a star. An eclipsing binary where one star was having its outer hydrogen layers stripped away so that one day all that will remain is the helium-rich stellar core, a helium white dwarf. A team of astronomers since that time have been using instruments provided by the European Southern Observatory to study and model the star and make predictions as to what properties the helium white dwarf will have when it is formed. This is done by taking observations of both the light curve of the star and its spectrum over long periods. By doing this, the astronomers are able to measure the waves that roll along the surface of the star and which pulsate from its core. These waves then give a detailed insight into the internal structure of the star and the forming helium white dwarf hidden within the outer layers of hydrogen gas using similar techniques to how seismologists investigate the internal properties of the Earth via waves through and along the ground caused by earthquakes. If the astronomers are able to successfully predict the properties of a helium white dwarf from its progenitor star, then it will allow for other helium white dwarfs to be classified. This will allow for astronomers to probe more easily the properties of extreme astronomical systems, such as the central globular clusters, and the environments around supermassive black holes. Also, the study of the age of pulsars relies upon the thorough understanding of helium white dwarfs, since both types of stars are regularly found in orbit around each other. Also in the news, 
Elliptical galaxies are a type of galaxy that are very different to the more familiar spiral type galaxies, like the Milky Way. First, they come in many different shapes and sizes, from the tiny dwarf galaxies that may contain only a few tens of millions of stars to giant galaxies with thousands of billions of stars, which is vastly larger than the Milky Way. The structure of an elliptical galaxy is not dominated by rotation, like spiral galaxies are, but instead all the stars are in independent trajectories that are bound together by all their mutual gravitational attraction. Another feature of elliptical galaxies that makes them vastly different to spiral galaxies is that they do not form any new stars, because they consume or blow away all the gas and dust required early on in their lives. This means that the red, bloated stars found within elliptical galaxies formed much earlier on in the universe. In a burst of very rapid and very efficient star formation that might last only 1 billion years, and occurred roughly 11 billion years ago. However, the largest elliptical galaxies provide a small problem for galaxy formation theories. They have formed hundreds of billions of stars much earlier in the history of the universe than should be possible. We know this because we can estimate how fast early galaxies are forming stars by measuring the bright infrared emission from dust clouds being heated by many short-lived massive stars and then also counting how many of these stars go supernova per year. One way in which very large elliptical galaxies can form is by mergers between two elliptical galaxies long after star formation has ceased. Since we see large elliptical galaxies have formed 7 billion years ago, and we know that they have ceased star formation 10 billion years ago, this leaves only a few billion years in which elliptical galaxies can be merging together to form the giant elliptical galaxies that we see. These sort of mergers have been observed, with many examples seen of galaxies tearing each other apart as they collapse together. However, this method does not explain all the large elliptical galaxies. At best, it can explain how two-thirds of the large elliptical galaxies came to be. Last month, new research published a different method for which large elliptical galaxies could form, backed up by observations of galaxies swelling with light from millions of newly forming stars. These early galaxies were much more turbulent than galaxies at the present time. For comparison, the Milky Way may form about one star per year, whereas early galaxies could form hundreds of stars per year. However, to be able to form elliptical galaxies with hundreds of billions of stars requires that a galaxy has thousands of stars being produced per year, and that there is a high efficiency for which interstellar gas is consumed to form these new stars. In order for a galaxy to achieve the required star formation rate of over a thousand per year requires the collision and merger of two already violently active star-forming galaxies, known as starburst galaxies. This is exactly what astronomers have found two starburst galaxies merging around 11 billion years ago. Although it is impossible to ever observe the product of these two galaxies, through simulations it is possible to predict the star formation rate of both galaxies combined, and it is found that it will be enough to produce the large elliptical galaxies observed in the more recent universe. Thanks for that, Stuart. Next, we have Libby Jones talking to Dr Zoe Leinhardt about planetary formation from collisions. Joining me on the Jogcast today is Zoe Leinhardt from the University of Bristol. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. Uh, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Oh, this is excellent. And now you work on the formation of planetary bodies. This is true. Can you tell me some more about your research? Yep. 
So I have a small group um, in the University of Bristol in the astrophysics group in the School of Physics. And um, our primary objective is to try to come up with a coherent uh, model of planet formation from protoplanetary disks up through planets. And at the moment, um, that is far too broad um, a time frame to model. And we are trying to chunk away at it piece by piece. So I started um, doing numerical simulations of sort of the middle phase of planet formation, where you uh, don't really have to concern yourself so much with the gas because you start with planetesimals or objects that are about the size of an asteroid and then integrate them in a numerical simulation on a computer until you get up to moon-sized objects. But now we would really like to be able to um, go all the way up to planets. Um, and our primary motivation is the diversity of extrasolar planets that have been detected. So there are just so many planets of sort of every flavor, shape, size, around any type of star. It's just really pretty insane. And that's really motivated me to try and come up with a coherent model that can go from this kilometer-sized objects all the way through multiple planets. And then hopefully, maybe in another 10 years, we'd be able to hook that onto the first part of planet formation. And my students are really working on trying to connect various phases, very specific phases of planet formation, with observations of those particular phases. So could you briefly describe how a planet would start to form around a star? That is a very good question. So we have a story that we tell ourselves and everybody else, um, and it has, it has two versions, and it does depend on whether or not you're talking about smaller planets or larger planets. But um, this story has never been observationally confirmed. So uh, the idea is that you start with a a lovely molecular cloud, uh, you form a star, and the material in the molecular cl cloud that has too much angular momentum forms an accretion disk around the star. So an angular momentum, you mean sort of a spinning disk around an object? That's right. And towards the center of the spinning disk is your young, hot star. And as this disk of material that is accreting onto the star, slowly but surely, cools off, um, the minerals, the metals, anything above hydrogen and helium on the periodic table, uh, form dust. And that dust magically clumps together to form kilometer-sized asteroid-like bodies that we call planetesimals, or the building blocks of planets. Which is where your models start coming into things. That's right. Then those kilometer-sized objects interact with each other gravitationally and uh, run into each other because their orbits are crossing. Um, due to small perturbations uh, from other planetesimals and from the central star. And they grow into lunar-sized objects, moon-sized objects, just from collisions. And then those moon-sized objects interact with each other on a much longer time scale because now you imagine that this disk, which was really very densely packed and full of lots of dust and debris, and slowly the optical depth or... or uh, the space between the objects increased as you decrease the number of objects. Now you really have a lot of space between each object. It's sort of cleared its own zone. It's eaten out all of the little bits of objects that it could, all the little bits of mass that it could eat in its own orbit. And so now you have maybe, you know, tens 
20 of these moon-sized objects would fill up sort of our own solar system at this phase in planet formation. And so their interactions, the interactions between these moon-sized bodies take a lot longer. And so they interact with each other again through gravitational interactions, and eventually they hit each other. And when they hit each other, they grow. And you maybe have a few of these giant impact events, and then you end up with a system that's totally stable and no longer uh, evolving in any perceivable way. And that's when we sort of assume that we have our stable planetary system. So is that for the big objects, the bigger planets, or is oh, that right. for the littler planets? So very good. Um, so that is our standard story for cores of larger objects and terrestrial bodies. Um, but there are also uh, another method or hypothesis for planet formation for uh, large planets and for planets that are far from their star, that we've observed to be very far from the star. And that would be about 100 times the distance between the Earth and the Sun. So if there are planets out at about tens, 50 AU to 100 AU, and they're quite large, quite massive, like several Jupiter masses, it's hard to understand how they could go through this process um, because the collision timescale out there is so long. They just don't have enough time to form. So the idea is that out there, the disk is very cold. It's very dense. There could be a direct gravitational collapse. And you could form your planet very quickly if the disk gets cold enough and becomes gravitationally unstable. So it can't support itself against the thermal pressure. And it just collapses directly, basically like a star. But it's like a secondary star in a disk. So it's sort of like finding a ba forming a binary system, but with one large enough to make nuclear burning and the other one not big enough for that. Yes, and the second one formed out of the material that never made it onto the first one. Instead of sort of having them form at the same time or from the same uh, parent, so they don't form directly from the same molecular cloud, but the second object, which we call a planet, but sort of goes through this different kind of process, is really a secondary object that is forming the same way that you would think of a star forming in a, in a molecular cloud in a very general sense but it's formed from a, a, a thin disk of material, not a spherical distribution, um, and it's just that, that gravity has, has won out over the thermal pressure of the disk at that location. Okay, so could you tell us now about how you look in detail at these systems with your models, your numerical models? So as I mentioned, none of this story is really observationally confirmed. And in addition... Each phase of, of the formation process has to be numerically simulated on its own, independently, at the moment. And this is primarily due to two factors. One is just our, com our computational ability. Our computers are still not big enough for us to be able to do the entire problem. So each, each phase of the process is simplified, and those simplifications don't apply to the whole process. They only apply to that particular phase that you're looking at. And that way we can do those phases. But then when we hand off to the next phase, we often don't use the result from the previous phase. We often have to simplify even more than that. And so what I've been trying to do is two things. One, connect some of the easiest phases together. And the other is to try and figure out if there are indirect tracers that would allow us to make observations of those phases um, without actually having to observe the thing that the objects that are effectively invisible to our telescopes.
So for example, in the middle phase of planet formation, where we're talking about uh, asteroid-sized objects moving up to lunar-sized objects, those objects are very hard for us to detect. They're hard for us to detect in our own solar system. So you can see Kuiper Belt objects, for example, but we're just pressed at being able to see the largest ones, all of them, in our own solar system. We're just able to do that, and we certainly can't get a lot of information from them. So it would be a lot easier, for example, if that zone was still collisionally active, if the Kuiper Belt was still collisionally active, to be able to see the dust that those collisions produced. And so we are trying to do to come up with numerical simulations that would allow us to predict the amount of dust that you would see during these processes and then figure out where we would have to, what kinds of stars would we expect to see them around, and then how could we make an observation of that. And that means that we need to have a collision model that accurately predicts what happens when these two objects hit each other. And so that's what I've been working on for several years, is coming up with an efficient but accurate collision model so that we could still evolve the solar system, uh, a young solar system, through to protoplanets, but we would be able to predict how much debris accurately you would be able to see and what it would look like. So that when ALMA, for example, gets to be fully functional, this region uh, would be sort of in the terrestrial zone, and that would be within ALMA's reach. And certainly dust is something that ALMA can see. That's what we're really going for at the moment. So at the moment, these tiny planetesimals are just so small and so cold that you can't differentiate them from any background. Uh, and that's yes, that's right. So, so they're small, they don't generate their own heat, and they don't scatter enough light from the star to make it visible. Whereas dust has, has a large surface area to mass ratio, and, so, and there's a lot of it, and it would, it would be very visible. So it's very good at reprocessing the light from the star. Yes, and even though you would have, infrared. that's right, even though you would have very little mass in comparison to the parent population, you would still have much higher likelihood of being able to observe it. And the other thing that you would be able to observe, uh, if you had a good enough telescope, are non-symmetric or interesting features in the accretion disk that would indicate that there were other bodies there that were gravitationally interacting with the dust. So when you start off with your model, you have lots of clumps of small material. How big would these be to start off with initially? Oh, that's a very good question. And it does depend on the, simula on the specific simulation. But they're anywhere between 10 to 100 kilometers in size. Okay. And for a star like our, our sun, for instance, mm -hmm. how many of these would you have around to start off with? In our numerical simulations, we can easily do a million planetesimals. So often my graduate students use a million. But we can go up to at least 10 million. And we are trying to uh, recode our evolution code so that um, we could run it on something like a GPU and do, do something even bigger than that. So what we have to do then is just start with an annulus of material. So we don't do the entire solar system, for example. We only do one AU swath with a million particles in it. Wow. And then these all collide together and then they coagulate to form bigger and bigger bodies. And then where does the end of that, that stop in each simulation? Right. So around a single star, that's absolutely correct. You just put a disk of a million planetesimals down, and you turn on gravity and allow them to uh, collide with each other, and they grow. And they go through uh, several known phases of growth. 
when you put them into, and we normally stop when we get to moon-sized bodies. Um, so when, when we get to about a dozen o large objects, we basically stop for, for this part of, of, um, of the simulation. But we are hoping that in the next few years, we will be able to continue that process all the way up to, um, so we would only stop when we actually got Earth-sized objects and there were basically no other objects for these, for these planets to eat, then we would stop. Yeah, but, but that would mean that we would have to transition to a different type of integrator. So right now we use a numerical integrator that is tuned so that it works very well for large numbers of particles, a million. But when you get to about, you know, 13 objects, then you really want your orbits to be calculated very carefully. And you want your gravitational interactions between these rather massive, I mean, relatively massive objects to be calculated very carefully. And that requires a different type of numerical integrator than the integrator that we're using at the moment. And the timescales will be longer for these That's bigger right. bodies as well to grow. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, I mean, it, it's about an order to two orders of magnitude longer. That, that second phase of, of evolution. And so you would want to, to, to have your code smoothly switch into a numerical procedure that is more efficient for that phase, exactly. When we put a disk around, if we look at extreme systems, which are a really good way of helping us to figure out if our, if our planet formation story is correct, um, then we don't necessarily have growth where we expect to have it. So, for example, if we were to try and work on um, circumbinary planets like Kepler-34, Kepler-16, and we put a disk of million particles around a tight binary system, then you have a, a very collisionally active zone where you don't have any growth um, or you have very limited growth. And it's not clear that the planet would evolve where you detect the current planet in Kepler-34, for example. And so that's another problem that we are working on. So have models so far been able to describe the growth of our own solar system? That's a very good question. And I think that there are several layers to the answer. Models have for a long time been able to show that you can form terrestrial planets from kilometer-sized objects. So in that sense, we have shown that we can form our, our, at least the terrestrial zone of our solar system. The rest of the solar system and the details becomes very tricky. I think depending on who you ask, some people would say that we haven't shown that we can form Mars. Either Mars is too large in these numerical simulations or it's kicked out altogether. We never reproduce Mercury, which has a very, lar a very large core, very, very thin crust. Um, and is very odd indeed. We have a lot of trouble explaining the distribution of water in our solar system, and we have a lot of trouble explaining the ice giants. And so to zeroth order, so to first order, we know that we, we can show that planets form easily, but we haven't been able to reproduce the details. And we certainly haven't been able to explain why in some systems you would get one hot Jupiter and in another system, you would get terrestrial planets that smoothly transition to gas giants and then to ice giants with a volatile distribution that moves, as you would expect, from inside to out. And then we have these other, these other crazy systems where you have multiple terrestrial super-Earth mass objects that are so tightly packed that 
they're just on the edge of stability. So they are stable systems, but they've stopped just shy of being unstable. And so we certainly can't explain why a star would, why, why a planetary system around a star would evolve into hot Jupiter, why it would evolve into this tightly packed super Earth system, or why it would evolve into our nicely ordered, separated system, where you have terrestrial planets and gas giants and ice giants. And that's one of the things that I am very interested in, is understanding what details in the numerical simulation are important to determining what, the, what happens later. So all the Kepler data, for instance, and all the super wasp data is just giving you a lot more of a conundrum rather than anything that can be explained so far. It's giving us a lot more data to work with. I mean, I think that the, the first thing that it tells us is that planet formation is 100% efficient. So whatever star we have, whatever, whatever numerical simulation we start with, we should expect that it will always produce some type of planet. Whether or not, in reality, every main sequence star, you have a 1 in 4 chance of, of, of having a planet or you know, a 7 in 10 chance of having a planet. That's effectively for numericists 100%. And so that that is helpful in the sense that whatever we're doing, it can't be relatively, it can't be hard. It has to be an, a process that actually works all the time. The diversity thing is, I mean, it's that, that's what motivates me, I think, to try and figure out if the, the diversity happens at the very end. You know, do you just have some interactions? Have you, have you got masses of planets that reach a certain size so that they can migrate efficiently just before the gas disk is all accreted onto the star and then it's all frozen in and you just have some that just managed to do that at one point versus another point um so some are earlier some are later and some don't migrate at all i i don't i don't know so a bit earlier on you mentioned about um disk and binary systems yes where would the planets how would the planets orbit around these right. objects okay so there are two types of orbits that we have found planets on in binary systems. One is around one star, so a primary, a primary star, a planet orbiting one star. Now that isn't always the more massive of the, of the binary partner. It could be the less massive, but it's, it's sort of the primary for the planet. Or you can have a circumbinary planet, and um, Kepler has detected several circumbinary planets, and these are planets that orbit around binary stars that are so close that they have we assume, a shared accretion disk. They didn't have two separate accretion disks as they formed. They have a shared accretion disk. Kepler-34b, for example, is a, a planet that is sub-Jupiter mass. So it's about two-tenths of a Jupiter mass, and it orbits around a binary system that has two stars of roughly equal mass. They're both uh, G-type single solar mass stars. And they orbit each other uh, with a semi-major axis of 0.2 AU, and eccentricity of 0.5. So they're very, very close to each other, but fairly eccentric. And one question that's immediately raised is, did the planet that is orbiting these two stars form where we see it? Or did it form further out in the accretion disk and migrate inward? And if it did, how far away would it have to have been in order to be in a zone where these collisions would result in growth? And how far did it have to move and how many other planets could have formed in the system. And one of my graduate students is currently working on direct numerical simulations to probe which zones are friendly for accretion. And the reason that we are particularly interested in this is that we actually have a bit of a disagreement in the community. Some earlier work has suggested that actually these, these sub 
Jupiter mass planets could have formed where we find them. And um, the work that I've been involved in suggests that the zones um, so close to the star are, are not accretion friendly, but they are stable. So you could form the planet further away and then move it inward and it would stay there on a stable orbit. But what my graduate student has found so far, he, he's only done a few orbits uh, because this required um, that we have, again, a very accurate but efficient collision model. And so we've gotten our new collision model integrated into our evolution code. So he has only been able to do about 100 binary orbits so far, but he has found that even in the accretion unfriendly zone, this erosion zone very close to the star that has stable orbits, so even though most of the collisions are erosive, every now and then there is an accretion-friendly collision. So there's a great overlap between the outcomes of the collisions. And so you can't be sure if you're in a particular zone that that will just mean flat out there's no, there's no growth. And this raises the question, well, how, how often do you have to have a growth event in order for the planets to continue to grow, or for the planetesimals to continue to grow. And so could you just have a few lucky guys in there? And would that result in, in growth? Because the collision frequency is so much higher, um, closer to the stars, they have a lot more uh, collisions, so they evolve more quickly. And that, that is what, that's what he's working on right now. And he's also going to look at if there are any evolution, if there are any observational signatures, any dust produced, that would then allow us to try and look for this process ongoing, as opposed to just being able to look for the, the final event and explain it. So at the moment, what can we actually observe in planet formation? Okay, so, so I think we can observe the very early stages when we have a hot, dusty disk that's optically thick, a protoplanetary disk. We can observe the end result. Um, we can observe the planets directly. We can observe their gravitational influence on the star indirectly. And if we're very lucky and we have some planets far away from the star, we can observe them when they're fairly young and still hot. We can also observe debris disks. It's a little bit unclear. Most of the time, those debris disks are very old. They, again, were, were probing the end stages of planet formation. So these are disks of asteroid or Kuiper Belt-like objects. The ones that we observe are very heavy disks. Those are disks that have a lot of mass in them, very much more massive than our own disks. So they might indeed be at a different phase of evolution. Theoretically, we can also observe inner belts like that that are producing dust. And, and in some systems, we have observed things like that. And new telescopes will get us much closer and much younger. So anything that produces dust Anything that will become optically thick or can scatter a lot of stellar light, that's what we can observe. We won't be able to observe the planetesimals directly. That will not be within our reach for the foreseeable future. With ALMA, I'm hoping that we will be able to probe down to 10 million years would, uh, and actually confirm that planet formation is ongoing. And that would be incredibly exciting because I think right now we're sort of orders of magnitude away we're, we're at hundreds of millions of years. Um, and so if we, can, if we can get an order of magnitude closer to the beginning of planet formation, that would be very, very exciting. So your numerical models allows you to predict what observations you'll be able to see in I this range? So. I hope so. I hope so. That's what we're working on. 
So I hope in the next year or so, we will have results that would suggest that we would be able to detect systems that are, are forming or very young, have a very young Jupiter mass planet and haven't formed terrestrial planets yet, um, but would be observable with ALMA and that we would be able to detect the indirect signatures of dust um, from collisionally active zones in those systems. Yes. That's excellent. I wish you lots of luck. Thank you. <laughs> I'd love it if you could detect this because that would be really exciting. Thank you very much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thanks for that, Libby. Now we get to the part of the show where we fit in everything else we want to talk about. It's the odds and ends. All right, so my odd and end this week is on uh, Voyager, almost, not quite, leaving the solar system. Uh, it's had a pretty fantastic trip, launched in the 1977, and since then it's been flying through space, it's passed a load of planets and uh, asteroids and stuff, and the next goal, scientific goal, is to try and find out the edge of the solar system. So it went through what they call the heliosphere and now then the heliosheath. And these are particles which are trapped by the sun's magnetic field. And they're trying to find when these specific regions finish. And so they have, basically they have three criteria as to when the solar system ends and when the interstellar medium starts. And their, their criteria are firstly that the particles from our solar system, from the sun, have to drop down and go to almost go to zero. Uh, the cosmic rays that we don't can't detect within the solar system have to increase. So because um, some low energy cosmic rays are deflected by this helio sheath, and then thirdly that the magnetic field from the sun has to change direction. And recently they've just published three papers in Science saying that they've met two but not three of these criteria so the number of particles from the sun has dropped down by around a factor of a thousand they reckon and so it's no longer detectable so it's a kind of a upper bound on what's outside this helio sheath and then the um part the number of particles from cosmic rays um low cosmic ray particles have increased and they can detect these low energy cosmic ray particles but they haven't found the magnetic field flipping which is quite surprising, actually. No one actually expected that. No models predict it. Uh, and in fact, they found that the magnetic field increases in strength, which is also something no one really expected. And so they kind of renamed this as the heliosheath depletion zone. Uh, and they're going to carry on flying through and see where that ends. They've managed to get, um, yeah, 17 light hours away from okay. Earth. Yeah. Which is, right. I worked this out. It's 12 billion miles long way. That's yeah. starting to get very far. Yeah, yeah, they've um they've been mentioning the sort of voyagers reaching the, the limit of the solar system for a while now, but they haven't quite crossed over, have they? It's yeah. just uh Yeah, they're still in the still in the kind of the realm of the sun's magnetic field, so yeah. they still class it as being within the solar system. Obviously though if if they're they now entered a region that no one predicted was there, so actually, you know, who knows how long it's gonna mm. go on for. Yeah, them, yeah obviously. Yeah, no one knows how long it's gonna go on for. Is it leading them to revise their models? Well, yeah, I assume at this point, yeah. I mean, whenever you get these big observational gold mines, you end up then having a whole load of other models trying, mm -hmm. saying, oh, yeah, we can predict this. Mm -hmm. So I assume, yeah, in in a few um, a few months, there'll be a whole load of new models mm -hmm. showing how this could happen. But yeah, it hasn't been predicted before. So it's a real kind of breakthrough for science. 
breakthrough for 1970s technology. Fantastic. Yeah. Great, yeah. And how long left has the Voyager got? Uh, yeah, so they, they said um, that it's nuclear-powered and the nuclear, they've got a, it's got a half-life of 35 years. Mm. So after 35 years, they'll have half as much energy as they had before. And so by about 2020, they'll have to start cutting off some scientific tech probes. Mm -hmm. And I think, I can't exactly remember, I think it was like 2025, they basically don't have any more power. Uh, That's a fantastic lifespan for any any mission, really. So, yeah, it's so amazing. Fifty good years. Yeah, yeah, good job to them. So my odd and ends comes from Mars this week. So NASA's produced an image from the surface of Mars larger than one billion pixels. It's done this using the Mars rover Curiosity, which has got three cameras on board, and it's taken more than or around nine hundred exposures and stitched them together. You can actually go and look at this image if you go to mars.nasa.gov and you can zoom in and out and pan around and have a look for yourself and see what you can see. So is it basically Google Street View but for Mars? Exactly, how awesome is that? <laughs> <laughs> that is cool. So so they use something like, I think they use three cameras uh, to get all the uh, all the shots? That's right, yeah. yeah. So when Curiosity took the images, it had just collected its first scoops of dusty sand, a windblown patch called Rock Nest. So the image pans around the area and it extends to Mount Sharp on the horizon. And because it, they've taken so many pictures, you've got, you do have different times of day um, and different types of conditions on Mars. So it's quite interesting to see those different conditions. That's a great, great, nice and close up look of uh, our neighbouring planet. Um, this week I'm talking about uh, actually a mixture of art and science. Um, so this artist called um, Katie Patterson um, is probably going to send up a piece of her of her latest art installation um, up to the ISS um, in collaboration with uh, with ESA. So her installation is actually um, quite interesting to anyone who's 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 interested in space because what she did was she took so she she acquired a meteorite, um, a small a small meteorite, about 4.5 billion years old. And um, she then made a, um, a detailed cast of it and then proceeded to melt the meteorite down and recast it back in its original form. So it's essentially the same but different. And I think she was trying to, to comment on sort of the, the, the place of humans in, you know, in, in the midst of this massive universe that we're in. Um, and the work's called Campo del Cielo, or Field of the Sky, and it's on display at the uh, the Turner Contemporary Gallery in Kent. So when she was developing the concept for the installation, the artist thought, well, it would be really interesting if, if she actually sent a piece of it, a piece of her sort of reconstructed meteorite back into space to sort of close the, the cycle that had begun by it arriving on Earth in the first place. And obviously ESA are extremely interested in, in meteorites and asteroids, and there are very... Uh, a number of uh, study programs and um, and, and uh, research programs involving meteorites, and so they were quite interested in in, in taking part in this. And so, according to the uh, scientists responsible for near Earth object activities, uh, Dr. Detlef Koshny, they are going to try and send a symbolic piece of the of the artist's meteorite to the ISS uh, as a sort of way of supporting public outreach and, and awareness of, of how art and science can come together and sort of do uh, interesting things. So a small sample of the meteorite will be 
assessed for flight qualification, and uh, if it passes, will be um, put onto the ESA's next automated transfer vehicle, ATV, called um, Georges Lemaitre, uh, after the cosmologist. And um, they hope that this kind of thing will get a lot of publicity and then hopefully inspire the next generation of, uh, of scientists and astronomers. Cool. And artists, I guess, to do more space-related mm. artwork, which is pretty cool. Now, here's a segment that's almost a piece of art in its own right. It's The Night Sky with Ian Morrison. The Night Sky for July 2013. Well, sadly, of course, at this time of year, we either have to wait up pretty late or get up pretty early to see a dark sky. And from the very north of Scotland, it probably never gets truly dark. But let's suppose we, we do stay up. As the sun sets and twilight gradually deepens the sky, we can see Leo setting over in the west, followed by Bootes with the bright star Arcturus. Over its, to its left, we will see lovely little circlet of stars, arc, called Corona Borealis, the northern crown. Up to its left is Hercules, with a very nice object I'll come to in the highlights of the month. And then further over, towards the southeast, and rising ever high in the sky, is a lovely region of the sky, containing the constellations of Cygnus the Swan, Lyra the Lyre, and Aquila the Eagle. The Milky Way passes through these constellations, so it's very rich. It's a lovely area to look at. The three brightest stars, Deneb in Cygnus, Vega in Lyra, and Altair in Aquila, make up what is called the Summer Triangle. Down to its lower left, rather beautifully, is a little constellation called Delphinus the Dolphin, a sort of a pentagon of stars makes up its head with a little arc tail. That's really rather nice. So what will we be able to see? Well, you've either got to stay up late to see the planets or get up pretty early because they're basically seen over in the west or in the east, either after sunset or before dawn. Let's start with Jupiter. It passed behind the sun on the 19th of June. And so in July, it re-emerges into the pre-dawn sky, shining at magnitude about minus 1.9. When it's just low above the horizon in the morning sort of dawn light, you'll almost certainly need to use binoculars to pick it up, certainly early during the month. Please don't use them after the sun has risen. Obviously, as the month progresses, it will rise a little sooner than the sun, making it easier to spot. And a highlight will show how Mars and Jupiter get very close towards the end of the month. Well, we've been observing Saturn in the sky over the last few months. It's now well past opposition, so it'll be seen in the southwest after sunset, not at a, sadly at a very high elevation. It lies 11 degrees to the west of Spica, Alpha Virginis, and will appear slightly brighter with a yellowish hue. As it's moving further from us, or we're moving further from it, I suppose, its magnitude drops slightly plus, from plus 0.5 to plus 0.6 magnitudes. And again, the angular size decreases a little from 17.6 to 17.1 arc seconds. Saturn has ended its retrograde motion across the sky. That's when it moves uh, towards the west. And in fact, remains virtually stationary halfway between Spica, Alpha Virginis, 
and Alpha Libri in Libra. The rings have opened out to about 70 degrees from the line of sight and should the seeing be good, and that gets harder the lower Saturn is in the sky when we observe it, a small telescope should be able to see Cassini's division between two of the rings. And of course there's a very good chance you'll pick up the brightest of Saturn's moons, which is of course Titan. Well, the other planets we'll see in the morning sky. Mars will lie about seven degrees above the northeastern horizon half an hour before sunrise as July begins. And binoculars should be able to pick it up in the pre-dawn sky. It begins a month with a magnitude of plus 1.5, increasing just a touch to plus 1.6 by the end of July. On the morning of the 6th, it will lie between the horns of Taurus, some six degrees to the left of a thin crescent moon. By July's end, Mars will rise some two hours before the sun, having moved eastwards into Gemini on the 14th of the month. As we will see later, it passes very close to Jupiter towards the end of the month. Well, Mercury, it passes between the Earth and the Sun, that's called inferior conjunction, on July the 9th and will only really become visible in the pre-dawn sky during the last week of the month. However, it brightens quite rapidly as it comes to what is called greatest western elongation from the Sun on the 29th of July, when it reaches almost zeroth magnitude. On the previous morning, it will lie just seven degrees below Mars. And finally, Venus. As July begins, Venus is about 25 degrees east of the Sun at sunset. But as the plane of the ecliptic is at a rather shallow angle to the horizon at this time of year, it will then be only about 11 degrees above the horizon. So to see it, you'll need a good low western horizon. As twilight really ends, its elevation will be just 5 degrees. But given its magnitude of minus 3.9, it should be fairly easily visible. And one of the highlights will show what happens on the 3rd of July. So what about a few highlights for the month? Well, I've got two here really covering four objects that you could look for with binoculars or in one case certainly you'd need a small telescope throughout the whole of the month. And they are of course in the general region of that summer triangle. The first of them is in the constellation of Hercules Four stars make up what is called the keystone. And if you move two-thirds of the way up from the lower right star of the keystone towards the upper right, you should see a little fuzzy blob in a pair of binoculars. And a telescope will show a beautiful, tight ball of stars. It's called a globular cluster, and in the Messier catalogue, it's number 13. Then moving over towards Lyra, a little bit down to the left of Vega, you should spot with binoculars a double star. It's called Epsilon Lyrae. But with a telescope, if the seeing's good, you can actually see that each of those two stars is itself a double. So it's called the double double. And then again, in this part of the sky, there are two of the best planetary nebula that we can observe in the northern sky. Below Vega in Lyra are two quite bright stars, 
beta and gamma Lyrae. And between them, a little bit towards the right-hand one, is the planetary nebula M57. It's called the ring nebula because it looks a little like a smoke ring when seen with a small telescope. And you will need a telescope to pick this one out. On the other hand, below Cygnus in the constellation of Alpecula is the Dumbbell Nebula, M27. And on a really dark, transparent night, you should be able to pick that out with 10 by 50 binoculars. Details of all of these objects can be found in what is called the Astronomical A-List. And if you go onto the Night Sky webpage of our observatory's website, you'll find that listed in the list of little tabs on the left. It's actually a list of 50 of what I regarded as the very best objects in the whole of the sky. So it includes those in both northern and southern hemispheres. And you'll find details about all of these objects in that particular section, the astronomical A-list. Um, if you want to spend about £10, you can actually get a printed version within a book called The Pocket Guide to Stars and Galaxies. I think it's just Pocket Guide to Stars and Galaxies, which I wrote some years ago. I mentioned Venus. Well, on the 3rd of July after sunset, although it'll be pretty low above the horizon, it actually lies in front of the Beehive Cluster M44 in Cancer. That's an open cluster, quite a broad one, a very nice one. Um, binoculars would almost certainly be needed to pick it all out. And that may show some of the brighter stars of the cluster. If you use a telescope with higher magnification, a nice thing is that that actually darkens the background skylight, but leaves the stars at the same brightness. So that should help you pick up some of the stars. Certainly, if it's clear, I will attempt to photograph it on the night of July the 3rd. Um, on July the 12th, a thin crescent moon joins Venus in the twilight sky, just below Regulus. And basically, the moon, Regulus and Venus lie more or less in a straight line within and just below the constellation of Leo the Lion. On July the 22nd, before dawn, Mars and Jupiter come to within a degree apart, 47 arc minutes to be precise. That's a very nice close grouping of the two. That evening, after sunset, Venus comes within one and a quarter degrees of Regulus in Leo. That's about 45 minutes after sunset. You should be able to pick that out. And on July the 24th, given a reasonable-sized telescope, there's a very nice line-up of Saturn's moons. This will be after sunset. Uh, Saturn will be sort of down in the southwest, uh, getting fairly low now towards the end of the month. And there's actually a, a sort of almost a, a, a straight line, not quite. Uh, low down on the left is Iapetus, and you pass through Titan and some of the others, up to Dione, which is just above Saturn. So again, with a telescope and a camera of some sort, that will be a very nice imaging opportunity. And finally, on the last two mornings, about 45 minutes before sunrise, on the 30th and 31st, Jupiter, highest up, Mars, and then Mercury, low down, will all be visible together. Again, you'll almost certainly need binoculars to pick out Mercury, but don't use them once the sun has risen. So I do hope you see something 
during the month, even though the nights are not very long. Thanks for that, Ian. Now, John Field tells us what you can see in the southern night sky. Kia ora and welcome to the July John Cast from Carter Observatory. With the winter solstice now past, we are moving through the coldest part of the year. Hopefully during this period there will be clear skies, allowing us long nights of observing. This month we have the brightest region of the Milky Way between Scorpius and Sagittarius in the southeast after sunset, and is well placed for viewing throughout the night. With its bright star clusters and nebulae, it is a great region for observing with just your eyes, or with binoculars or telescope. In many cultures, the Milky Way is seen as a heavenly path or river across the sky. Sitting at the apex of our evening Milky Way is Crux, the Southern Cross. The smallest of the 88 official constellations, Crux has become an icon of the Southern Sky. It has the appearance of a diamond kite with four bright stars along with a fifth faintest star inside the kite. To Māori and Aotearoa New Zealand, it is known as Tipanga, the anchor. To one side is a dark patch in the Milky Way known as the Colsac Nebula. This is a cold and dark cloud of interstellar material that may eventually form into star clusters. Running along the Milky Way towards the east are the two bright pointer stars, Alpha and Beta Centauri. These two stars mark the front hooves of Centaurus, the centaur. This is a mythical creature with the body of a horse and a human torso with arms replaced in the neck and head. Northwards of Beta Centauri, you may spot a fuzzy star. This is Omega Centauri, a large globe of many millions of stars. Binoculars and telescopes reveal more detail and the fainter structure. Along the Milky Way in the north, we find the two celestial birds, Aquila the Eagle and Cygnus the Swan. Den of the brightest star in Cygnus is low down on the northern horizon and marks the tail of the Swan. A line of stars runs up the Milky Way to the stunning telescopic double star, Alberio, marking the head. When viewed through a small telescope, you will see a beautiful pairing of pale yellow and blue stars. Although it is catalogued as Beta, the second brightest star in Cygnus, it is actually the fifth brightest star in the constellation. The brightest stars in Cygnus form a large and easily seen cross, and is commonly known as the Northern Cross. To the east of Alberio is Aquila, the Eagle. This constellation is marked by a distinct line of three stars sitting to the eastern side of the Milky Way, with the bright star Altair, the twelfth brightest star in the night sky, in the centre. At a distance of 17 light years, it is a nearby star to our solar system. The name Altair means the flying eagle in Arabic. In Greek mythology, Aquila represented an eagle carrying one of Zeus's thunderbolts. Straddling the Milky Way, Aquila contains a number of star clusters well within range of small telescopes. NGC 6709 and 6755 are two pretty open clusters of stars. There are a number of planetary nebulas in Aquila as well. This is a very short phase in the life of a solar mass star. Early observers called them planetary nebulas due to their circular appearance when viewed through a telescope. A third bright star nearby is Vega in the constellation of Lyra. Vega, Deneb and Altair form a large triangular asterism called here in the southern hemisphere the Winter Triangle. The planet assessment is well placed for viewing in our evening sky. Sitting not far from the bright star Spica in Virgo, Saturn will have a yellow hue, while Spica is a distinct blue-white colour. Saturn was known as Kronos, the keeper of time and the father of the gods, and the harvest god in Greek mythology. Through binoculars, you may see Saturn has an elongated appearance. 
A small telescope should easily reveal the rings and Saturn's largest moon Titan and possibly one or more of the other moons. Venus is low in the west after sunset and it will appear as a brilliant star. Mars and Jupiter are in the morning sky rising before the sun and they will make a pretty pairing towards the end of the month. Aldebaran and Betelgeuse will be seen above these two planets. Both of these stars have a similar hue to Mars and are brighter. Mercury will join this grouping over the last days of the month. Thanks for listening in to our Judcast and the team at Carter Observatory wishes you clear skies. Thanks for that, John. Unfortunately, this week we don't have much feedback, but thank you by email for your all of your asking astronomer questions. Um, thank you, of course, for all the likes uh, on Facebook and uh, and for all the retweets and follow Fridays on Twitter. And of course, if you do want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net, the forum at forum.jodcast.net, Twitter at twitter.com/jodcast, Facebook at facebook.com/jodcast. YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. All that's left is to say thanks to Dr. Zoe Leinhart for the interview. The editors were India Leclerc, Christina Smith and Dan Thornton. And the producer was Dan Thornton. Until next time, jod on! on.